Hello, and welcome to the latest podcast for The Lancet, Gastroenterology and Hepatology. I'm joined today by the author of a review of therapies for irritable bowel syndrome, which is featured in our new issue. Professor, please reintroduce yourself. Yeah, good morning, and thank you for, for the introduction. I'm, my name is Magnus Simran. I'm a professor of gastroenterology at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. Now, Professor, this is a review on therapies for IBS, and it covers the entire field of treatment. It's a very interesting and practical review of IBS treatment. And it's mainly focused on how to approach the specific symptoms that need more targeted treatment. Do you think we could start our chat by expanding a little bit more on this? Yes, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, is one of the most common functional gastrointestinal disorder, and it is characterized by abdominal pain associated with abnormal bowel habits, which can be predominantly loose and frequent stools, infrequent and hard stools, or alternating diarrhea and constipation. Currently, there is no valid biomarker for IBS, but uh, the diagnosis relies on the presence of the characteristic symptoms according to symptom-based diagnostic criteria, where the latest uh, criteria are the Rome 4 criteria. And uh, the symptoms should be there together with absence of objective findings on a limited number of standard diagnostic tests and investigations. But patients with IBS do not only suffer from abdominal pain and abnormal bowel habits, but many IBS patients also suffer from other gastrointestinal symptoms such as bloating and abdominal distension, as well as symptoms considered to emanate from the upper part of the GI tract. To complicate things further, extraintestinal symptoms such as back pain, headaches, urogenital symptoms and sleep disturbances, functional syndromes such as fibromyalgia, temporomandibular joint syndrome and chronic fatigue syndrome, as well as psychological comorbidity are also common among IBS patients. And when managing IBS patients, all of these symptoms need to be taken into account when deciding on a treatment strategy. So, Professor, what, what are the main therapies? In general, a stepwise management approach is advocated. And the first step is in the management approach for patients with symptoms compatible with IBS is to make a confident diagnosis and to provide explanation, reassurance, and education about IBS. Most patients with IBS should also receive advice on diet, lifestyle, and to avoid symptom triggers in order to improve symptoms. If these conservative measures do not reduce symptoms to an acceptable level, the next step is to choose a pharmaceutical treatment option based on the predominant symptom as well as the presence of other symptoms. And for patients with more severe symptoms that are refractory to this initial pharmacological treatment approach, psychological treatment options, including psychotropic agents, as well as combinations of different treatment options can be tried. Now, there's a heavy emphasis on psychological therapies as alternatives as well. Could you expand on that a little bit for us? Yeah, there are several factors, actually, so that support the use of psychological therapies in IBS and other functional gastrointestinal disorders. First of all, in the pathophy- pathophysiology of functional gastrointestinal disorders, abnormal brain-gut interactions are considered to be of great importance. In fact, in the recent Rome 4 process, functional GI disorders are referred to as disorders of gut-brain interaction. And many patients with IBS also have psychological comorbid conditions, such as anxiety and depression. And many psychological therapies have effects both in the central nervous system as well as in the periphery, including the gastrointestinal tract. So using psychological therapies for IBS is quite logical. And these treatment approaches are mainly used for patients with more severe symptoms that are refractory to standard management principles. Psychotropic drugs, especially antidepressants, are frequently used to treat pain and other symptoms in IBS. And we also use other psychological interventions such as cognitive behavioral therapy, gut-directed hypnotherapy, and psychodynamic and interpersonal psychotherapy. 
But due to limited availability, these treatment options are often saved for patients with more severe symptoms and psychological comorbidity, even though they also seem to work in patients with milder symptoms and less prominent psychological comorbidity. So do any of these therapies change the long-term course of IBS? Actually, there are few long-term studies in IBS, and there is actually no clear scientific evidence supporting that we can cure IBS with the current treatment paradigms or substantially change the long-term course of IBS. Instead, the treatment options currently used can be seen as symptom-reducing treatments. But from a clinical perspective, you sometimes meet patients where GI and psychological symptoms interact and influence each other, and by breaking these vicious circles, for instance, by improving psychological symptoms, you can occasionally break the vicious circles of psychological symptoms, amplifying severity of GI symptoms and vice versa, with beneficial long-term effects even after the treatment has been stopped. So uh, from a clinical perspective, you sometimes feel that you can affect the long-term course of IBS with some treatments. So could we talk a bit about the role that diet plays in IBS, and in particular the, uh, the new FODMAP diet? How different is this one from a standard IBS diet? Uh, yes, food is central to many IBS patients, and the majority of IBS patients report that intake of food leads to worsening of symptoms. So therefore, dietary advice is considered to be very important in the management of patients with IBS. And the principle of di principles of dietary management of IBS rely on promoting what can be considered a healthy eating and lifestyle, and to evaluate and modify certain foods that can trigger symptoms such as alcohol, caffeine, fat, spicy food, and gas-producing foods, as well as reducing meal size and instead increasing the number of meals per day. One should also assess the possibility of food intolerances, uh, potentially restrict milk and dairy products, and modify intake of dietary fiber. But if these general dietary measures are not sufficient, some patients try the so-called low FODMAP diet, uh, which is a diet low in foods, rich in poorly absorbed carbohydrates that can pass unabsorbed through the small intestine and into the large intestine, where fermentation and osmosis leads to more gas and water in the gut lumen and to bowel distension and symptoms in sensitive patients. This diet is a diet where you need advice from a dietitian or a nutritionist since you eliminate certain food items and replace them with other food items. So when you are on a low FODMAP diet, you are advised not to eat certain fruits such as apples, pears, and watermelon, vegetables such as broccoli, cabbage, and onions, cereals and grains such as wheat and rye in large quantities and pasta, beans and legumes, milk products, and artificial sweeteners. This very restrictive diet is not the diet to use long-term, but after a four-week elimination period, gradual reintroduction of the eliminated food items are tested and symptom evolution followed in order to come up with a good long-term dietary strategy for the patient. Now, the different types of drugs used for IBS, what are some of the pros and cons of them? So, as mentioned previously, if conservative measures do not reduce symptoms to an acceptable level, the next step is to choose a pharmaceutical treatment option based on the predominant symptom as well as the presence of other symptoms. So, in patients with diarrhea as the predominant symptom, loperamide is the most common first-line option. It's a mu opioid receptor agonist with positive effects mainly on stool frequency and consistency as well as urgency, whereas its effect on other IBS symptoms is negligible. The most common side effect is constipation. And second-line treatments for options for IBS patients with diarrhea include 5-HT3 receptor antagonists such as allocitron, ramocitron, and ondansetron, the non-absorbable antibiotic rifaximine, the opioid receptor acting drug eluxadoline and bile acid binding agent. 
The most common side effects for all these drugs is also constipation. For eluxatiline, the most concerning side effect is development of mild pancreatitis and sphincter of spasm with elevated liver enzymes. And for some of the 5-HT3 receptor antagonists, the most worrying side effect is the ischemic colitis. The main problem after treating patients with rifaximin for two weeks, weeks, which is the recommended strategy, is that the effect gradually disappears and the retreatment is necessary in a large proportion of subjects to retain symptom improvement. An important aspect when treating patients with bile acid binding agents is that they should be taken at different time of the day uh, than other drugs since they can bind not only bile acids but also other drugs and thereby reduce the availability of these. In IBS patients with constipation as their predominant symptom, fiber and or osmotic laxatives are the most common first-line options, whereas secretagogues, linaclotide and lubiprostone are considered second-line treatment options in patients who do not respond adequately to treatment with laxatives and or fiber. For fiber and laxatives, positive effects on constipation can be seen, but these treatment options have little or no effect on pain and bloating. And in fact, bloating and gas symptoms together with loose stools are the most common side effects with fiber and laxatives. For linaclotide and lubiprostone, the most common side effect for both drugs is diarrhea and for lubiprostone also nausea. Antispasmodics and tricyclic antidepressants are the most widely used pharmacological treatments for IBS with pain predominance. But several of these, uh, the drug alternatives that I presented previously as drugs for IBS with diarrhea or constipation predominance also improve pain and bloating and can, can be considered for patients with pain and bloating predominance as well. The most common side effects for antispasmodics are related to their anticholinergic effect, which means that it is, it is constipation, dry mouth, and blurred vision. And these side effects, together with sedation, can also be seen for tricyclic antidepressants. Also, modern antidepressants, SNRIs and SSRIs, are often used to treat overall IBS symptoms, including pain, primarily in patients with multiple and severe symptoms that are refractory to first-line treatment option. So, pharmacological treatment for IBS should be based on the predominant symptoms, as well as taking a combination of symptoms reported into account. So, what advice can clinicians offer patients uh, when it comes to modifying their lifestyle to treat IBS? It's quite common that the patients report that uh, different lifestyle factors worsen their IBS symptoms, and stress management, dietary changes, and increased physical activity have all been reported to improve overall IBS symptoms uh, in clinical studies, and uh, this is especially true in patients who report that these factors trigger their IBS symptoms. So lifestyle advice, uh, advice should be definitely taken into account uh, when managing patients uh, with IBS in general.